What gives you that rush? Is it shopping, sugar, or social media? When we talk about addiction, we often think of gambling, pornography, alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. But the need to get more applies to lots of different activities and substances. Dr. Anna Lemke says the smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. Is it time for you or someone you love to quit? You're listening to Healthy Looks Great on You, a lifestyle medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vicki Petz-Casper. This is episode 104, It's Time to Quit. We all have addictions, some more serious than others. Regardless of where you get your high, evidence points to dopamine as the underlying mechanism. Today, we'll look at how Americans use tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, opioids, and how they can quit. But even if that doesn't apply to you, it probably affects someone you know and love. You'll also learn about how dopamine affects us all and makes us come back for more. Spoiler, the science on this is fascinating. We all have a drug of choice. What do you want to quit? It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot harder than you think. And staying quit is even harder. Let's start by talking about harmful substances Then we'll discuss effective treatments. That's right, there are effective treatments for addiction. Finally, we'll dive into a pool of dopamine evidence and see how that affects every single one of us. I remember with fascination sitting in the auditorium of my elementary school. Getting out of class for a presentation was always exciting. The man on the stage had two jars that contained human lungs floating in formaldehyde. And Listen, I thought that was so cool. One was pink and spongy and the other was black and corroded. And the man told us one of these lungs belonged to a farmer who lived in the country and worked outside all day long driving a tractor. The other man lived in a big city. Then he asked us to choose which lung belonged to which man. Living in a small town and proud of our smog-free air, we all raised our hands that the clean lung belonged to the farmer. And we were all wrong. The farmer smoked. In the United States, 14% of adults continue to smoke cigarettes despite the overwhelming evidence of harmful effects on health. And if that number holds, that means that most of you listening don't smoke, but hang in there for a while. You might be surprised by some information I'm going to share that has broader applicability. There are 13 states in the United States where smoking rates are highest. They are Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Is your state in the list? Tobacco use comes with a price tag of $300 billion a year. Some of that's medical cost and some of it's productivity lost. But even more important is the human cost. Lifespan in smokers is shortened by a decade on average when compared to non-smokers. Now, Not everyone who uses tobacco products dies from tobacco-related illness, but half of them do. We all know that cigarette smoking causes cancer, stroke, heart disease, lung disease, and death. But did you know that more women die from lung cancer than breast cancer? 30% of all cancer deaths can be attributed to tobacco. 
Cancers associated with smoking include bladder, kidney, ureter, some types of leukemia, cervical, colorectal, esophageal, stomach, liver, larynx, which is your voice box, mouth, pancreas, and of course, lung. It's also associated with decreased fertility and worse pregnancy outcomes. Rheumatoid arthritis is more common in smokers. The risk of diabetes is even increased by 30 to 40%. On top of that, it makes your teeth yellow, makes your hair and clothes smell bad. Besides, did you know the cost of a pack of cigarettes is now $8? Why would anyone smoke? Of course, that reminds me of a song. Tell me, Hank, why do you drink? Why do you roll smoke? Why must you live out the songs that you wrote? And I suppose it turns out that we all live out the songs we write. And it's pretty complicated why we do the things we do. But we might have more in common with smokers than you think. Here's the deal. Most people who smoke want to quit. A whopping 70% want to stop. But it isn't that simple any more than you can quit where you're getting your own dopamine hit. I have some good news though. There is effective treatment and we'll discuss that in a bit. But here's something you need to know. Most people who successfully quit have tried and failed many times. The average number of failed quit smoking attempts is six before succeeding. So don't give up. Just because the last effort didn't work doesn't mean the next one won't. And the benefits start immediately. Physical inactivity and smoking are the leading causes of preventable death in the United States. Low socioeconomic status comes in at number three. Guess what's number four? Alcohol use. There's been a sharp, historically high increase in the consumption of alcohol. Deaths due to use increased by 50% between 2006 and 2019. Imagine what it's done since the pandemic. And it's more so in women than men. And you'll probably be surprised at this. The other group that's seen a huge increase in alcohol addiction is people over the age of 65. When I was growing up, my mom had this ready-made sermon about the dangers of alcohol and drugs. Anytime the subject was mentioned on TV or in a conversation, she launched into words that had been repeated so many times I could recite them myself. Once I remember being at her house and the subject came up, she started in on how nothing good comes from alcohol and drugs, so I'd better not start. Look, I was 27 years old, the mother of a toddler, and I was already a medical doctor, and the lecture seemed ridiculous. And so I told her, Mom, but I said it, you know how you say, Mom, at this point in my life, I really think I'm past that. (laughs) But I guess my mom was right, and I was wrong. There is no safe harbor age. Now let's go to the classroom because we need to look at some numbers and definitions. 14% of Americans meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder. At-risk drinking is defined as more than four drinks a day for men and more than three drinks a day for women or people over the age of 65. Looking at it a different way, Heavy use is defined as more than 14 drinks a week for men and more than 7 drinks a week for women or people over the age of 65. Numbers are not my opinion. They're simply definitions. While we're studying facts, let's look at another measurement. What is one drink? 
One drink is a 12-ounce beer, a 5-ounce glass of wine, or 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. Filling up to a little more math, a bottle of wine is 5 drinks, a fifth of bourbon is 17 drinks, and a liter of vodka is 22 drinks. Excessive alcohol use causes more than 140,000 deaths per year in the United States. Most is due to chronic drinking over many years and how that impacts health. But alcohol also results in sudden tragic deaths like crashes, other accidents, poisoning, and suicide. It also causes cancer. Specifically, alcohol is associated with cancers of the head and neck, esophagus, stomach, liver, colon, and breast for women. Alcohol also affects the bone marrow, which can decrease platelets and is associated with some types of leukemia. Not to mention, it's associated with high blood pressure, stroke, bad pregnancy outcomes, including developmental delays and birth defects. Alcohol misuse can cause anemia, osteoporosis, dementia, liver disease, which can lead to irreversible cirrhosis, and heart disease, as heart failure and AFib. Red wine has been shown to have some benefits for the heart, but there is significant controversy over whether the benefits outweigh the risk. Gastritis and ulcers occur because of inflammation of the stomach lining as a direct effect of alcohol. It can also impair the ability to absorb an adequate amount of B vitamins and other nutrients. Eventually, this can permanently damage the brain. Inflammation can also affect the pancreas, leading to pancreatitis. You probably know that alcohol is metabolized in the liver, but did you know that the sex hormone estrogen is metabolized in the liver too? That means estrogen levels are affected by drinking. Excess estrogen in men can cause gynecomastia. Remember when Frank Costanza invented the bro or the man's ear for men who needed breast support on one of the Seinfeld episodes? That was funny, but this probably isn't. Higher estrogen levels due to alcohol can cause erectile dysfunction and shrinkage of the testicles. Yikes! In women, it can cause irregular menstrual cycles, infertility, weight gain, low sex drive, as well as PMS, hot flashes, and night sweats. Even moderate drinking increases a woman's chance of developing breast cancer. Being drunk can lead to inappropriate behavior, slurred speech, problems with attention or memory, and poor coordination. Even more serious are blackouts, which are memory lapses due to intoxication, coma, and even death. And people who drink too much are also more prone to pneumonia. That's because they can't protect their airway from stomach acids going into their lungs. Aspiration can be fatal. Over time, drinking too much alcohol may change the normal function in areas of the brain associated with the experience of pleasure, judgment, and the ability to exercise control. This may result in craving alcohol to restore the good feelings or to reduce the negative ones. Craving occurs with all addictions, including the behavioral ones that don't involve inhaling or ingesting a substance, things like social media. And sometimes there's a compounding effect. People who have surgery for weight loss have their stomach size reduced, which makes alcohol enter their bloodstream at a ramped up rate. So what used to be one drink now feels like three or four, and that can be dangerous. Overall, food addictions are complicated and difficult to treat. I mean... You can't completely abstain from food, and that's usually the goal of treatment, though that's been questioned recently. So now we need to go to mini medical school and talk about the power of dopamine. It's the neurochemical 
that drives the brain's reward pathways. The more dopamine something releases and the faster it gets released by something, the more addictive that something is. Your something could be a wide range of things that releases dopamine into the brain's circuitry that connects the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, and the prefrontal cortex. This topic is so interesting that I'm going to dedicate an entire episode to it. But for now, here's an overview from psychiatrist Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation. She explains all this so well. I recommend reading the entire book. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. And I read my copy with a highlighter pen and a notebook. Consider it your homework assignment. But here's some cliff notes. Pleasure and pain are processed in the same area of the brain. The goal of your body is to keep all this in balance. And when the balance tips towards pleasure, there are powerful self-regulating processes activated to restore a state of equilibrium. When the pleasure stimulus happens over and over, the pleasure response gets shorter and blunted. But the equalizing pain pathway gets stronger and longer. This is called neuroadaptation. Now the person needs more not only to feel the pleasurable response, but to avoid the pain. This is called tolerance, and it's super important in addiction. With continued exposure, the balance shifts and is weighted towards the pain side. This is called addiction. The drug or behavior doesn't produce pleasure or a high anymore, but instead it causes misery without the substance or behavior. This is called withdrawal. Withdrawal feels the same, whether it's alcohol, pornography, or social media. Without a fix, you'll feel anxious, irritable, and down. Want to know how to feel better? Easy. Take another hit. This is called relapse. And it can happen even after a long period of abstinence because who wants to live with their pleasure-pain balance tilted toward pain? This is called craving. It's the drive to alleviate pain and suffering from withdrawal rather than to experience pleasure. Want to know why it happens? Listen, class, in this course, the answer is always going to be the same. Dopamine. Whatever gets you high causes increased dopamine levels. After abstaining, eventually you encounter a trigger to return to the behavior or substance. What happens next is that dopamine levels actually drop below baseline, and that feels miserable. This state of deficit is a powerful push for your body to seek balance by whatever means to make you feel better. This applies to shopping, binge watching, using alcohol, drugs, pornography, or compulsively checking for likes on social media or deliveries to your email inbox. Dopamine makes us crave. Study this quote from the book Dopamine Nation. With prolonged and repeated exposure to pleasurable stimuli, our capacity to tolerate pain decreases and our threshold for experiencing pleasure increases. We are unable to forget the lessons of pleasure and pain even when we want to. Hippocampal tattoos last a lifetime. We become endless drivers, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. Remember, the hippocampus is in charge of memory. Your brain won't forget the memory of being temporarily satisfied with one more pill, one more drink, one more drag, and one more item in your Amazon cart. Fortunately, like tobacco use disorder, alcohol use disorder can be treated as well. Unfortunately, Treatments for alcohol use disorder are underused. 
We'll discuss that in a bit as well, but let's continue with substances that cause addiction. Marijuana is the most commonly used drug in this country. Since 1937, marijuana has been illegal according to federal law. But in 2014, Colorado gave a new meaning to Rocky Mountain High when they legalized it for recreational use. Now it's legal in 24 states, and that number will likely increase. An additional 14 states have legalized marijuana for medical use. Marijuana was recognized as a legitimate pharmaceutical drug from 1850 to 1942. It was used to treat anxiety and lack of appetite. Marinol is still on the market as an appetite stimulant, and it's mostly used in cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy. However, scientific evidence touting the benefits of using marijuana haven't really been proven at this time, and the cannabis of today is 5 to 10 times more potent than what they were smoking at Woodstock. Now get this, 21% of adults report usage in the last year. Wow, that number surprised me. So that leads to a discussion about availability, access, and addiction. Since marijuana became legal according to the states, now remember, it's still against the law federally, use increased dramatically. What's even more interesting is that data shows that those increases in use occur just prior to successful ballot initiatives to make it legal in states. So not only does availability matter, so does acceptability. I mean, in my social circles, it would be offensive to walk into a party in someone's home and light up a cigarette. But when I was in elementary school, I remember the deacons at church standing on the sidewalk smoking between the Sunday school building and the church building. That's no longer acceptable. But man, gorging on a bunch of donuts at church seems to be fine, even though sugar is probably the most addictive substance we could talk about. Acceptability and access matter, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, or sugar. During Prohibition, there was a 50% decrease in alcoholic liver disease. Yes, there were speakeasies and bootleggers, I know, I know, but overall there was a significant reduction in alcohol use. Easy access makes you more likely to use and more likely to become addicted. This holds true in homes, too. When teens have access to alcohol at home, they're more likely to become problem drinkers as adults. Starting early increases the probability of a problem. Plus, we all know teens are more likely to binge drink and do stupid stuff. Smoking used to be portrayed as glamorous. Even doctors advertised their favorite brands. In the movies, all those movie stars smoked, and they looked so cool. But in the last 20 years, it's more of a stigma to smoke. You know what happened? Smoking rates have declined. For alcohol, just the opposite is true. As acceptability and availability have increased, so has consumption. And as a result, consequences. My mom always said, don't drink, don't chew with the boys who do. Turns out there's some truth to that too. People who hang around with people who drink are a lot more likely to have a drinking problem. That holds true for other substances as well. Second to marijuana are prescription drugs, mostly opioids, but also stimulants and sedatives. Overdose deaths from opioids, including prescription pain pills, heroin, or synthetics like fentanyl, have increased more than six-fold since 1999. And from 2014 to 2019, synthetic opioid deaths increased over 1,000%. 
First responders now carry naloxone in a nasal spray or injectable form to treat opioid overdose. Emergency rooms also supply the drug to patients and their family members who might be at risk for overdose. The deal is it works immediately by binding up the receptors and kicking the opioids off, therefore blocking the effects of drugs like heroin, fentanyl, morphine, and oxycodone. So, back to the question Hank Williams Jr. asked himself, why? Apparently, he answered his own question. If I get stoned and sing all night long, it's just a family tradition. Family history has a big impact, partly from access, availability, and acceptability, but there's probably also a genetic component, too. Evidence indicates that genes exert about a 40 to 60% influence because of, you guessed it, dopamine levels in the brain. There are environmental factors that play a role as well, such as a history of trauma, especially in childhood. Also, underlying depression, anxiety, and other mental disorders are a factor. Often, people with addiction are self-medicating. But aren't we all self-medicating, or at least self-soothing? Let's take a look at medical treatments for addictions and think about how they might apply to us personally. The first topic in the mini medical school syllabus is tobacco cessation. Counseling actually helps. And it's like green eggs and ham. It helps on the phone, in person, alone, or in a group. And it's dose dependent. More counseling equals better results. More intense counseling, better results. But listen to me closely. The user has to want to quit. If they aren't ready, there's no chance of success. There are seven medications approved for tobacco cessation. Nicotine patch, nicotine lozenges, nicotine gum, nicotine nasal spray, nicotine inhaler, bupropion, and renicline. There are also off-label uses for clonidine and nortriptyline. The gum, lozenges, and inhalers are all short-acting nicotine replacement therapies. You get that craving for nicotine, you pop a piece of gum in your mouth, chew it up, and it satisfies it. These are most effective when used in combination with things like longer-acting nicotine patches or nasal sprays, and they achieve quit rates of around 30 to 50%. Varenicline is the most effective single drug, but if you add a patch, you get even better results. Go even higher if you add behavioral therapy as well. And this is the recommended treatment for smoking cessation. Bupropion may also be an effective prescription. What do you think is one of the biggest concerns for smokers who want to quit? Yep, weight gain. And on average, women gain about 10 pounds or less. You see, in lifestyle medicine, all of the pillars work together. Nutritional eating is important, stress management, regular physical activity, and reduction to exposure to harmful substances. Remember, most people have multiple quit attempts before they are successful. And this may apply to whatever behavior you'd like to quit. Like anything else, it's always important to identify the reasons for continuing, whether it's smoking or something else. Look at the triggers. Look at the barriers to quitting. It's also important to develop physical and mental coping skills. And I hope that makes you think of last week's episode on stress management. We added lots of tools to our toolbox. Are you beginning to see how these threads of lifestyle medicine are interwoven together? Whatever your drug of choice, you should know the risk of using and explore the rewards of quitting 
and identify the roadblocks to success. Then, do it again and again and again until you succeed. I cover a lot of this in my free mini course, 7-Day Prescription for Change. There is a sign-up link in the show notes, and all I need is your email address. You'll get the course by email, and there's also a free downloadable workbook that will help you make changes that make a difference in your lifestyle choices. Smokers should start by setting a quit date. Tell your family and friends, then get a prescription for the medications that are right for you. And don't forget counseling. The other thing is, get tobacco out of the house, out of the car, out of the workplace. Availability and access matter. And anticipate your triggers. If you always light up at the bowling alley, then figure out what you're going to do before you go to the bowling alley. Another important resource is the National Quit Line. It's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Now, if only there were medications to treat alcohol use disorder. Oh, wait, there are. The one most people are familiar with is antabuse. It's disulfuram, and it blocks the enzyme needed to metabolize alcohol. And it causes some pretty unpleasant side effects like flushing, nausea and vomiting, headaches, And it's supposed to deter drinking, but here's the deal. If you know it's going to make you miserable if you take it and drink, then why would you take it if you're going to drink? The compliance rate with this drug is understandably terrible. And like smoking, the drinker has to want to quit. If someone you love has a problem with alcohol, remember the three C's they teach in Al-Anon. You didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. But there is hope, so let's finish up the pharmacology. Now, Trexone is a drug that binds the mu opioid receptors, which blocks the pleasant feelings that people get from drinking alcohol, and thereby prevents heavy drinking by reducing the urge and craving to drink. But if someone does drink, it doesn't make them ill. But if you get drunk while taking Naltrexone, you probably won't get any of the good feelings. This drug has been shown to help prevent relapse. Acamprosate modulates glutamine neurotransmission. It's a synthetic form of two neurotransmitters that work by inhibiting pathways. GABA and taurine calm the brain. It helps restore balance and therefore eases withdrawal. Problem is, it's several pills several times a day, so it's not an easy regimen. Gabapentin has been used off-label to treat alcohol use disorder, but it has its own potential for abuse. None of these medications are a magic bullet, but they do help. Wondering why you haven't heard of this before? Fewer than 10% of people with alcohol use disorder are prescribed one of these medications. While they may be helpful, it takes more than a pill to conquer this beast. That's why there are 12-step recovery programs like AA. I put a link in the show notes. In AA, they teach you to rely on a higher power. But I think it's important that your higher power actually be higher and powerful. So I put a link in the show notes to a program that I recommend called Celebrate Recovery. It's a Christian 12-step program to help you overcome hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And listen, don't we all have hurts, habits, and hang-ups? I personally went through the step studies and found tremendous spiritual and emotional healing. I feel so strongly about this. I want to go through the 12 steps. 
Number one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. Can anyone relate to that? Doesn't matter whether you're addicted to a substance or you just have chaos in your life. Number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Sometimes we need restoration, don't we? Number three, we made a decision to turn our lives and wills over to the care of God. That's that higher power that's higher and powerful. Number four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I'm just going to tell you from experience, this is the hardest step. It's difficult to look in the mirror and see your character defects and deal with them. But man, it's a way to grow. Number five, we, a- we humbly asked him to remove all our shortcomings. Number six, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Making amends is an important component of recovery. Next, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible except when to do so would injure them or harm others. We continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. See, this is just a way of life. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. That's that serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Next is having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Nothing helps us stay on the right track more than if we're helping someone else stay on the right track. Notice that first step deals with denial. And that's the problem. Many people don't realize how much they drink or even think they have a problem. One suggestion I have is to start with an app on your phone so that you can track your intake. But also listen to others. If someone is telling you you need help, they may be right. Denial is a huge barrier to recovery with anything, but especially with alcohol. Often people think they don't have a problem. You know, we all tend to minimize our issues by rationalizing or justifying why we do what we do or blaming something or someone else. Dishonesty is almost always a part of substance abuse of any kind, not just with others, but with our very selves. One of the components of recovery is radical honesty. Not even telling a little white lie. Not even embellishing anything. All day, every day. People who have a problem tend to cast light on others' issues who are worse off. (laughs) You know, comparison is never productive. And if you try to bring up someone's drinking problem and they're not ready to discuss it, you're likely going to encounter denial, dismissiveness, deflection, and defensiveness. Developing emotional intelligence takes intentional effort. You know, there aren't any one-step programs. Once someone is receptive to starting the process, it's helpful to start to someone who's been there and successfully quit. One of the first things they'll tell you is to count your days of abstinence. Abstinence is the mainstay treatment for all addictions. AA teaches you that you have to change your people, places, and things. This cannot be overemphasized. During the Vietnam War, as many as 35% of soldiers tried heroin and up to 20% were addicted. Wow. Heroin is one of the hardest addictions to overcome. Want to know why? 
It's like hitting the dopamine jackpot in your brain. But here's the surprising news. Nine out of ten soldiers kicked the habit virtually overnight. Guess what they did? They went home. They went home to a different environment. You see, acceptability and access matter when it comes to addiction. In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear simplifies it by saying, to change your behavior, change your environment. That's why environment is such a crucial component of recovery, whatever your drug of choice. You will make better lifestyle choices when surrounded by people who make better lifestyle choices. It's important to let others know when you're making a change too. Make it clear you aren't drinking anymore or eating dessert or whatever. Some people will push you and you need to put some healthy distance between those people so they don't drag you down. Healthy lifestyle choices perpetuate each other. Eating nutritiously, exercising regularly, getting restorative sleep, managing stress, and having positive social connections help in recovery from harmful substances. Addiction specialists can also help, and addiction is complicated, so all the help you can get is beneficial. This is particularly true for quitting opioids. There are specialized clinics that can prescribe all the medications used to treat opioid use disorder. One of the treatments is now Trexone that blocks the euphoric and sedating effects. Then there's buprenorphine, which helps with withdrawal but can also precipitate it, so it requires caution. And then methadone is a full agonist opioid with a long half-life and daily dosing. It requires dispensing through a treatment program. We have literally just scratched the surface, and I want to talk so much more about dopamine. Yes, I know you're shocked. Dopamine fasting is a hot topic, and it deserves its own episode. I also want to explore the evidence around cold water immersion and its use in tipping that pain-pleasure balance to treat addiction. But for now, I hope you'll take what you learned today and apply it to your drug of choice, even if your drug isn't a drug at all. Do the hard work of recovery, and when you fail, try again. And when you relapse, remember, you know the way back. Keep working the program because sober and healthy look great on you. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not considered to be a substitute for medical advice. You should continue to follow up with your physician or healthcare provider and take medications as prescribed. Though the information in this podcast is evidence-based, new research may develop and recommendations may change.